You are listening to Maghreb in Past and Present Podcast, a space dedicated to history, art, culture, politics, sociology, anthropology, and many other subjects. This episode is part of the Contemporary Thought series and was recorded on June 20th, 2019 at the Centre d'études Maghrebines à Tunis, CEMAT. In this episode, Dr. Larissa Chomiak, CIMAT Director, interviews Andrea Tetti, Associate Professor of International Relations at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland, about the Arab Transformations Project. The Arab Transformations Project ran between 2013 and 2016, led by Aberdeen University and carried out public opinion surveys in Morocco, Tunisia, Egypt, Libya, Jordan, and Iraq, with the principal goal to examine social, political, and economic transformations in the region. Can you give us an overview of the project, including challenges and main insights? Well, the Arab Transformations Project conducted public opinion surveys in seven Arab countries in the second half of 2014. And as you mentioned, the idea was that these surveys were designed to be integrated with sister surveys like the World Value Survey, Arab Barometer, and Afrobarometer, and plug them into a single uh, database which would also include all existing standard social, economic, and political indicators in a sort of database that would allow us to conduct longitudinal analysis, kind of long-term analysis of, of social, economic, and political transformations. So looking at this data allowed us to arrive at several quite interesting conclusions, interesting both for scholarship and for, I think, for political debate, and for policymaking and public debate. They're on topics like corruption, democracy, migration, gender, security, religion, and so on. And we also have a unique battery of questions that have to do with the perception of Europe, of the European Union in the Middle East. So let's just go through some of the main conclusions. Corruption. It turns out that corruption was the single most powerful driver of support for and participation in the Arab uprisings, not authoritarian repression as often uh, is commented on. Uh, but this doesn't mean that people weren't dissatisfied with the regimes they were living under and they didn't find them uh, repressive, on the contrary. One of the troubling things, and I'll say more about that later, but one of the troubling things is that most respondents still today, 10 years nearly after the Arab uprisings, still today most respondents think that, believe that corruption is very serious and they have absolutely no confidence in governments actually doing anything concrete about it. Another hot topic, youth. Very often, in especially in Western media commentary, you find the assertion that the Arab uprisings were youth revolutions. It turns out that this is not at all true. In fact, supporters and participants in the uprisings were quite evenly distributed across different social segments. And what does this tell us? This tells us that actually the failure of the regimes and the groups that the regimes alienated with and mobilized with those failures across the board. There wasn't a specific subsection of society that was so disgruntled that it turned out to protest. These are representative samples from across society. Democracy. Contrary to popular perception and to much scholarship, there actually is a strong Arab demand for democracy. The One of the reasons why it's sometimes missed is the fact that actually it turns out respondents have a very different conception of democracy from the one that's contained in, uh, in scholarship and in, 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 in policy and in public debate. It's not just about free and fair elections, it's about much more than that. It's about civil and political rights, but it's also about social economic rights, it's also about social justice. And that's important because it turns out, you know, if, if you're designing policy based on these incorrect assumptions and you're just, in a sense, pointing in the absolutely wrong direction. 
In relation to migration, you know, we asked whether people had thought of emigrating either temporarily or permanently. About 40% of people across all countries are driven to consider emigrating either, like I said, temporarily or permanently by economic security. Economic insecurity uh, accounts for 80% of those people who want to emigrate. Um, and that corroborates evidence of widespread lack of legitimacy and of trust in regional uh, governments. Gender. People do display fairly conservative um, uh, patriarchal values, but also a significant demand for gender equality, some of which has already been translated into law and to constitutions in, in Tunisia, for example, in Morocco. As far as religion is concerned, it's true that people demand more religion in politics, but contrary to what much scholarship and public perception believe, people also extensively mistrust clerics and reject the notion that they should participate in politics. For example, Iranian style by vetting elections or laws for security and stability, which is, you know, of course, the great uh, fixation of uh, Western uh, governments. Trusts in incumbent regimes is sometimes actually unexpectedly high in Egypt, for example, which would lead to suggest that there's, you know, some actually these regimes are stable. But in you, if you ask people about so-called bread and butter issues, things like education, health, jobs, the kind of things that states do uh, on a day-to-day -day level they're supposed to be doing, popular legitimacy actually drops uh, enormously on these um, bread and butter issues. And that suggests that there is a certain amount of, that there is a considerable amount of the incivility underlying that headline value that we mentioned before. Violent repression may put these regimes in position to appear stable, but it also perpetuates and amplifies, worsens the conditions for political mobilization, for political radicalization in one direction or another, and thus in general for instability. So the appearance of stability doesn't actually tell us the whole story. From this point of view, this to me suggests that we should actually be thinking of authoritarian regimes as what I call security sinkholes. In other words, things that appear strong or stable, some politicians' famous words, but actually mask tensions until they are dramatically revealed and unexpectedly revealed, suddenly revealed, as, in fact, the Arab uprisings, I think, aptly demonstrated. And finally, the question of the perception of the European Union in the Middle East. Well, if you ask people what they want, they mostly want their governments to address socioeconomic rights and conditions alongside, and certainly not instead of, civil and political rights. They also quite clearly distrust the European Union, not least because its rhetoric about fundamental values appears contradicted by trade and investment strategies and political strategies in support of, of uh, regimes that perpetuate and worsen inequality and insecurity rather than the other way around. And in fact, Pamela Abbott, myself, Valeria Talbot and Paolo Maggiolini are just about to publish a, a major book on, on exactly how we get into this a mismatch between the way that the European Union promotes democracy, stability, development in the Mediterranean, the so-called southern neighbourhood, and the way, in fact, people perceive the European Union and those policies. So that's that's as far as the main conclusions are kind of headline-grabbing uh, issues are concerned. I should say something about the data analysis, so the kind of the stats junkies can tune in and everyone else can skip to the second question. On the data analysis... This longitudinal analysis that we attempted to see these kind of historical, or at least in the last couple of decades, trends, turned out to be quite difficult, and this uh, for several reasons. First of all, there are, although there have been surveys in the Middle East for the last 20 years or so, it turns out that there's still relatively few data points. And remember that 
in order to have useful data points, you actually need to have surveys being carried out repeatedly in the same countries and asking comparable questions. And if you want to analyse region-wide trends, then of course you have to have this happen in several different countries. And that's just not the case, actually. You started by having surveys in a few countries in the early 2000s, and now there's there are much more regular and much broader uh, much larger uh, number of countries included in surveys. But um, but historically, if you try to put all the data together, it still can be quite patchy. The second limitation that we faced was, in a way, inherent in the very tool that we relied on, on survey research. Now, surveys rely on simplified answers to standard questions. And while this allows us to detect broad trends in the population, that's the whole reason why we do these kinds of things, it also means that we're often missing important details. Now, we tried to compensate this for this by looking at data in considerable depth. So, for example, uh, on the question of democracy, you can look at prima facie evidence. Do you like democracy? Do you think it's a good system for your country, etc.? Uh, but you can also look at secondary or indirect correlates of democracy. You know, what kind of political system do you like? Um, attitudes towards uh, gender or um, religion and so on. Right? Uh, but nonetheless, there are limits. So, for example, if you ask a question like, do you think that democracy is compatible with Islam, uh, immediately a qualitative researcher will ask, what do you mean by democracy, what do you mean by Islam, and what do you mean by compatible, of course, and, and the answers that you give to any of those three questions as a respondent will shape the way that you answer. All that sort of detail is lost. So that's that's a limit. Now, so these difficulties produce limitations in the data and in the possibilities for our analysis of the data, which should not be underestimated. We need better data. We also need to integrate qualitative data, such as uh, sorry, quantitative data such as surveys, as alongside qualitative data, for example, from semi-structured interviews and so on. We tried to do something interesting, or we think we've come to interesting results at the empirical level, and also, I mean, th I think we're quite conscious of the fact that um, survey data certainly it doesn't provide all the answers, but it does provide a piece of of the answers uh, if it's used wisely. Many observers, especially Western policy professionals and scholars, conceive of the 2011 uprisings as youth revolutions. According to this project, what do we learn about the youth's involvement in 2011? Well, like I said before, I thought I might surprise you by saying that these weren't actually youth revolutions uh, at all. It always struck me that certain Western commentators should be so quick to call these youth revolutions when in fact anyone who has been or was on the ground at the time, or in fact anyone looking carefully at the footage on television from the comfort of their own living rooms, um, could tell you that protesters came from all age groups and all sorts of social backgrounds. Right? And in fact, survey data backs this up. It confirms this. Respondents' answers about whether they actively took part uh, in the Arab uprisings or whether they passively supported the uprisings without actually going into the streets and protesting shows that within each country, there's no significant difference in the rates of support for or participation in by any um, major demographic characteristic, age, education, economic position, gender, urban, rural, etc. So what does this mean? Well, it means two things, uh, two sides of the same coin. One side of the coin, basically people came from all sorts of walks of life to protest, right? The other side of the coin, well, quite simply, um, it means that these were not uprisings by a single specific group within society. And people participated roughly equally from all social backgrounds. In other words, regimes managed to alienate people from across the full spectrum of society in every country in which the uprisings, the protests took place. This is very strong evidence that tells us that whatever the regimes thought they were doing, whatever 
uh, uh, Western governments were doing in, in uh, their diplomatic, economic, political relations with these regimes, um, whatever they thought they were doing, uh, they were alienating, they were annoying, they were uh, uh, pushing a lot of people from across society to protest. Uh, so that again confirms that we're not talking about regimes that had widespread um, uh, legitimacy or, or trust or support from their own populations. And this is confirmed by data on other issues like, for example, corruption, that we'll see a little bit later on, that shows us that indeed there was a, a very deep dissatisfaction with governments throughout the region. A more in-depth question. How does this project fit into theoretical and empirical discussions around conceptions of democracy, especially as this is at the crux of the perception of democracy debates in Tunisia since 2011, if not before, about visions of what a democratic order would look like? I want to say two things um, about conceptions of democracy on the one hand, and specifically then about the role of, of um, corruption. So first of all about democracy. Well. First of all, I have to say, um, around 2011, I started doing some research into the conception of democracy in European Union democracy assistance since the 1990s. And after having examined an inordinate amount of policy documents of all kinds, not an exercise I'd often recommend, I published a few articles showing how the EU committed to an inclusive, broad, holistic notion of democracy in principle in the preambles of these documents, for example. But in practice, as you move through the documents, if you look at the, uh, the European Union in policy in practice, ended up actually, the EU ended up actually promoting a narrow liberal conception of democracy, focusing on democracy's procedures, especially free and fair elections, so-called, but ignoring economic rights, ignoring social rights and ignoring social justice. In fact, I called it democracy without social justice. Now, when we start looking at the data on people's perceptions of democracy, and this is why I, reason I mentioned my previous research, um, when we start looking at people's uh, perceptions of democracy and people's perceptions of the EU, I was quite pleasantly surprised, although depressingly so, to see that actually they supported my argument about the flaws in EU's democracy promotion policy. So basically, um, the things that the European Union is getting wrong in the promotion uh, of democracy in its policies are uh, exactly the areas uh, that people feel the European Union is falling flat on um, in, in the Middle East. So what we found using the survey data was that while people were content, broadly speaking, with a kind of classical representative democracy as a system of government, which is interesting enough as a, as a, as a, as a evidence, they associated with the idea of democracy a range of aspects which have to do with social and economic rights and with social justice, right? So a, a broader notion um, than this kind of narrow procedural conception of democracy. Basically, people thought that socioeconomic rights and, and substantive outcomes are an important part of democracy, as well as the civil and political rights which classical scholarship and policymakers focus on, right? Free and fair elections, all that kind of stuff. Sometimes, um, this focus just on social justice, uh, which people have, is dismissed as a kind of mere desire for jobs or economic outcomes. Now, I've heard from more than one policymakers, a policymaker, as well as scholars, and not just from the West, say, oh, right, so they only care about jobs, which is a, a massive misunderstanding, I think, of, of what the data is telling us. But I suspect that scholars and politicians have too long dismissed the notion that people have a conception of democracy, which is far more nuanced, holistic, 
than those found in, in classical um, scholarship. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, contrary to popular perception and to a fair amount of scholarship, there is a strong Arab demand for democracy. And this seems, it seems to me that the data uh, is, uh, that the evidence is undeniable on, on this. Having said that, we do have to ask what people actually mean by democracy when they give these answers. Right? Uh, as often happens with the survey data, interpretation is not straightforward. But if we do look closely, not just at the questions which respondents are asked outright, whether they prefer democracy, uh, etc., whether democracy is a preferred system for their country, etc., but what actually respondents think are democracy's essential characteristics, what we find is that while democratic theory and democratization studies, and indeed Western governments' policies, think of democracy in a minimalist procedural manners, like I said, only focusing on free and fair elections and a couple of other things next to that, uh, civil and political rights are necessary to make those free and fair elections work. For respondents in the region, the essential aspects of democracy include both civil and political and socioeconomic rights. And while scholarship and policymakers are busy focusing on narrow definitions of democracy, people in the region actually have a conception of democracy much closer, uh, ironically, much closer to what Europeans would call social democracy. Right? The kind of system that Europeans have had since World War II and which still survives in places, despite having been eroded for the past several decades. Right? So, this substantive social democratic conception of democracy is missed both by scholarship again and by uh, government policy. The consequence of that is that those policies are inevitably mistargeted and the analysis also, but that's a different kettle of fish. Um, now, for example, in, in our new book, we examine the way in which um, we, make, we examine in detail the way in which EU democracy assistance policy makes this mistake and link this mismatch precisely to the poor reputation the EU has in the region, its inability to act as the kind of normative power that it believes itself to be. As we say in the book, that the kind of the all too real policy risk of making this mistake is that not only Western policymakers and crucially regional governments miss opportunities and options open to them, um, for example, even in simply making those societies more resilient, more uh, stable, etc. But that their failure to support the kind of democracy that people in the region actually want may help erode or undermine not just the stability of those countries, but the legitimacy of the idea of democracy itself. And that's really, I think that's a really incredibly serious uh, problem. Uh, of all the factors associated with democracy, corruption, or rather the fight against corruption, of course, its elimination, is in most countries, by some margin, the most important single variable respondents believe defines democracy. In other words, people believe that having a society free of corruption is crucial to have a in, a, in a democracy. The same goes for the challenges facing re respondents' countries. Right. So in most cases, corruption is either the most important or one of the top two or three variables which people focus on if you ask them what's the most important challenge facing your country. It's also by far the single most important factor which drove people to passively support or actively take part in the Arab uprisings. And unsurprisingly, people still think corruption is an enormous problem facing regional countries, and they think that their governments aren't making significant inroads into tackling uh, corruption itself. So this is, or they ought to be, pretty worrying for regional international policymakers, 
um, and of real concern for, for example, for the EU, uh, since quite a lot of its uh, uh, policy now has focused on corruption for the last few years, to support the elimination of corruption. The other thing to note about corruption is that while it's an area of concern, it's too often reduced to a kind of technical issue and somehow depoliticized in this way. You know, I've heard people claim that the Arab uprisings were not about democracy or um, uh, or they about or they weren't about protesting dictators because they were really about corruption, um, as though you can isolate corruption in this way, you know, as though it's independent of politics or of economics of of the system that you live in. Now, anyone who has lived in a society which uh, in which corruption in some form is endemic knows that this is a dangerously simplistic view and a serious mistake, both analytically and politically. Think of it this way. During the uprisings, and more or less ever since, the Arabic nidham has been translated into English as regime. Uh, and while that translation is not wrong, nidham can also mean system. That's another meaning associated with that word. In a regime, in a system in which corruption is rampant, corruption can't be understood as either merely economic or merely political or indeed a merely legal issue. Corruption is never simply economic, it's never simply political, it's never simply social, never simply legal, it's always multidimensional. Now, if this is the case, then two things follow, I think. First, that corruption becomes a touchstone issue, a symbol, uh, a rallying cry capable of epitomizing everything which protesters are dissatisfied with. Right? Second, it follows that protesting against a nidham which has corruption at its heart, say for example in Tunisia or in Egypt, and calling out Ashab Yuri Liskat on Nidam may well mean that people are demanding the downfall of the regime. But I think they're also calling a regime in the sense of you know a, a few people at the top and, and people in power and so on. But I think they're also calling for the end of a particular kind of system, one which has abuse and corruption at its very heart. Now, if that's the case, then it doesn't seem to me to make much sense to think of um, the Arab uprisings as some kind of reformist movements or movements that were short of revolutionary. They may not have had revolutionary leaderships, but certainly their demands had a, a very revolutionary reach or implications. Regarding religiosity or the relationship between religion and politics, what findings does this project shed on this decade-long debate? This is a very interesting question, and of course it's a highly politically sensitive topic, and I think we have um, findings to match. The issue of the relationship between religion and politics in the Middle East is something of a vexata question. Uh, in particular, the stereotype that there's something special about the region and or about Islam as a religion in its incompatibility with democratic politics has proven exceptionally resistant to evidence. Um, partly in scholarship itself, but also certainly in, in policy and in public debate, uh, certainly. Uh, the data our survey produced is the latest in a long line of different types of empirical evidence which challenge that preconception. What we found is that people do indeed self-identify as religious and that by and large they wish to see more religiosity in public life, whatever exactly that means. And this is one of the areas that we have difficulty per in getting purchase on through survey instruments. At the same time, the data is equally stark in showing that people do not trust religious leaders. In addition, if we look at questions such as whether religious leaders should be given um, a say in elections, people very strongly reject that notion. 
Same goes for government decisions um, or, or laws. People may want more religion, but they can certainly they certainly do not want government decisions to be vetted by their religious leaders. So what the data seem to be saying is that people are happy with more religion in politics, whatever exactly that might mean, but that their current leaders do not embody the kind of change that they have in mind. And crucially, that those leaders should be given no special constitutional status to influence governments or parliaments. There's another difficulty here which kind of has to do with the design of major surveys, and I've mentioned this a, a little bit beforehand. Um, so it has to do with the way that surveys are designed to get data on this topic. And survey questions are very good at getting answers from very many respondents, which we can sensibly aggregate to get an idea of what a large group of people, say a nation, think about this or that topic. But to do this, survey questions have to simplify and, and vitally important get, detail gets lost in the process. Let me give you an example. Um, the example that I, that I mentioned earlier on, actually, if you ask, say, is Islam incompatible with democracy, which is the question that's in our, um, in, in our survey. Or, for example, should Sharia uh, form the basis of law? Um, and you give only three types of answers. Yes, no, don't know, or refuse, right? What should I make of either yes or no answers? I, as an analyst, right? How do I know what kind of democracy, what kind of religion, kind of Islam in this case, what kind of Sharia you have in mind when you, the respondent, answer the question? Now, in, in, in a large survey such as ours, there are some other questions that we can try and cross-reference with. You know, for example, the, quest the questions on preferred political systems, where again, there's fairly consistent preference for a lay kind of classical representative democracy. But there's only so much that you can do um, staying solely within the confines of survey research. Of course, this is, this is the area where qualitative research is much more effective and much more produces much richer, more detailed, uh, nuanced data. And we need more of that, especially, especially in dialogue with so-called larger end studies, such as survey-based uh, research. So what do we take from this? What, what we take is this, is, I think, is, it, is an exhortation to think more and harder about the relationship between religion and politics. On the one hand, you have people self-identifying as religious. Okay, can we infer what that means politically? Of course we can't, because the data is also telling us that people don't want uh, necessarily they don't trust their religious leaders, they wouldn't want them to have active roles in politics, so clearly they want something else. What this something else might be is, is uh, still not clear, at least from survey research. Of course, kind of qualitative research is much more informative on this uh, kind of count. Let's conclude this conversation with placing the 2011 uprisings into a global context. How do the tensions and contentions of that moment relate to the global socioeconomic, political and structural shifts and demands made by people worldwide? I would say that two things stand out for me. Um, on the one hand, the fact that the Middle East, in this case, challenges stereotypes um, and, and in a sense leads the world and protest. And the second, uh, pertinent to, um, to democracy. First, I'd say the fact that the Arab uprisings, especially once the Tunisian revolution cascaded into the uprisings in Egypt, in Bahrain, in Libya, in Yemen, and so on, the fact that the Arab uprisings put paid to the orientalist stereotypes about the region, that the, people's reg the people in the region are somehow unsuited to democracy, uniquely predisposed to authoritarianism, etc. Kind of, and that it reminded the entire world how effective ongoing true mass mobilization can be 
at putting governments under pressure is it's difficult to overemphasize how important this lesson it is to learn this lesson not just in the Middle East but far beyond um, its confines especially in fact in uh, amongst its European neighbors in this sense uh, I think the uprisings provided a stunning example of people power to the world of just how much you can achieve um, through sustained mass mobilization not, this is not to say that mass mobilization in itself is enough to topple regimes, to change the world, etc. But it is a necessary, if not sufficient, condition, it seems to me, of any kind of desire of radical change. Secondly, democracy. Um, at a time when regimes, both democratic and authoritarian, operate by excluding people, both economically and politically, so in some, some ways they're kind of copying each other's games, right? strategies, People react by demanding both socioeconomic rights, social justice, inclusion, social inclusion, and political inclusion. So, whereas systems operate to marginalize them, on the one hand, economically, socioeconomically, on the other hand, politically, they protest by demanding inclusion along both of those axes. At the heart of the Arab uprisings, along with protest movements around the world, say Quintaeme in Spain or the Occupy movements, are precisely claims for both civil and political rights and socioeconomic rights, both political inclusion and economic inclusion, in a word, for social and political justice. In a world in which authoritarianism increasingly dresses up as democracy and in which democracies adopt increasingly authoritarian tools, people have been asking for what the Spanish call democracia real, ya, real democracy now. And I think that nearly 10 years on from the uprisings, it's still difficult to overemphasize how important that lesson is for current political um, uh, debates, current political predicaments, both in the Middle East and in the so-called West. Thank you for listening to Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts. Other episodes are available on our website, www.themagrippodcast.com, as well as on iTunes and Podbean. For more information on our podcasts, like our Facebook page, Maghrib in Past and Present Podcasts, subscribe to the CEMAT newsletter at www.cematmagrib.org, or visit the webpage of the American Institute for Maghrib Studies. See you soon for a new episode.